Welcome to the Berkeley Skydeck podcast. Skydeck is a top global accelerator and home to over 300 startups every year. We're a program of UC Berkeley, and our mission is to help startups achieve exceptional growth and connect them with top talent, advisors, and investors from Silicon Valley. In each podcast, we cover different topics in the tech and startup world. In this episode, Skydeck's executive director, Caroline Wynette, interviews Mark Tarpening, one of the original co-founders of Tesla and a current investment partner at Spiro Ventures. I'm delighted to welcome Mark Tarpening today to our Sky Talk. Mark, welcome, and we're really excited to talk to you about all that you've done, what you're up to, and and what you see as a future. And I wanted to just start off uh, by telling our guests about, about Mark Tarpening. He is an alum of UC Berkeley with a BA in computer science, then went on to be an engineer. His first startup was Nuvo Media, and now with his new role as a board of trustee member at the Nuevo School and on the board of the Sitarja Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology, and of course, importantly, a Sky Advisor, we of course will talk a lot about the company he co-founded, which is Tesla, and get to hear that great that great origin story. So, Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about your current role as an investor at Sparrow Ventures and, and how you got there, and then we can dive into to fun things about Tesla and, and all good things. Well, great, and thank you for that intro, and it's, it's great to be here. So I'm currently a venture partner at Sparrow Ventures, which is a small venture firm in Redwood City. It's in a beautiful old building right in, right in downtown on Broadway. We have a single LP, which is Pierre Omidyar, who is one of the founders of eBay, we only invest in things that we care about. I, you know, mm. I, I don't think they particularly like it when I say that, but it is, it is the, the, the case. We look at companies that create real community, that do something about health, at both of, of people and planet, and things that help the future of work. And you know, future of work, of course, is, is almost a meme at the moment, but, but there, really is, there really are a lot of transitions that are happening and how how that can be both handled and enhanced and, and made better, you know, for, for a future that we all want to live in. Couldn't be more timely, because as we're recording this today, in very early March, we're just in the middle of dealing with the coronavirus here uh, in the U.S. And at, and at UC Berkeley. So that's about to become very, very topical. So, so your experience as a founder, you've had two startups both of which did did quite well, and and we'd like to hear the story a bit about that. But let's let's go back to to your days at Berkeley. Tell us about your time at Berkeley, and and what about it you think you really drew upon um, as you became a startup founder. Well, there were a couple of things. So first off, you know, I was here impossibly long ago. <laughs> I was in the in the <laughs> early eighties, and uh, you know, it's it's a great time to you know to be young and and. Institution like Berkeley, where there's so much going on, and and you know so much in sort of instructional depth everywhere. I started uh, actually. I was in the class that changed from quarters to semesters. So my first year were in quarters, and then everything else was semesters after that. And I wasn't entirely sure I was going to do computer science because I had been so deep into the sort of computer and geek community as a teenager. At a time when that was really hard, now it's like, you know, what big deal? we had to build all our computers. In fact, we, my friend and I that came to Berkeley brought our home-built computers because that's what we had. Oh, that's great. Oh, yes. It was, everyone was quite, you know, they looked at them quite uh, perplexed. But it was just a, you know, it was a, it was a fun experience. I, after the first quarter, realized that 
computer science was really where I needed to be. And I, I took, you know, from that point on all the, all the, you know, CS requirements and, and recs. And that was, that was great to be exposed to, you know, things that I had learned independently, but having them in a rigorous way was, was eye-opening. Mm. So, so tell us how you got to your first startup and, and that journey. Oh, to, to the first startup. Mm-hmm. So I had, uh, after leaving Berkeley, I had always been doing sort of independent projects, even when I was at Berkeley. And then when I finished and got my degree, I immediately just went to Europe uh, to hang out. I had <laughs> saved enough money, you know, for these gigs and got sucked up into it. another project there, which then took me to the Middle East. And that went on for years and years and years. But when I came back, you know, I thought, well, where where did I have the most fun? Where was it the most interesting? So I moved back to the Bay Area. I'm from Sacramento originally. So I came back, moved back to the Bay Area, and met my, you know, eventual co-founder. And he was the boss of my my roommate from Berkeley and actually my high school friend that, that we, you know, came together. So I met Mar- Martin Everhard. And it was, you know, a very exciting time in Silicon Valley. It was in, you know, the 90s. We were ramping up to the dot-com boom and then later bust. And it was, uh, the startups were in the air. I had been doing some consulting work with a bunch of different startups along the way. And it was time to do one ourselves. So that first startup, very interesting because it was, it was before its time, right? Yeah, we didn't quite get the market timing exactly mm-hmm. right on that one. So, which, which then, of course, for your second startup, you did, but, but your envisioning of the future and, and thinking independently, I think, I think we, can, we can say that's, that's part of you, and maybe Berkeley helped uh, nurture that in you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Berkeley helped in a, in a whole lot of ways, not only the employees and, that we hired, but also there is, you know, Berkeley is a great place, and it has certain obstacles in the way frequently with the, oddly, the administration. And one of the things that I learned was that anything unusual that you wanted to do, you could actually probably do it at Berkeley because somebody in the past has done it before, and they've created a form for that. And it's just a matter of finding the right people with the right form and getting the right signatures. And a little bit, you know, that in some ways that is about, you know, startups as well, in that there's lots of obstacles and frequently there really is a path through. It, it, isn't, it, it isn't the roadblock that you think it, it actually is. Yeah, very interesting. We often say at Berkeley that this is the, the land of a thousand flowers bloom. And so, so you just have to go and look and see where that little seed might might be planted. Mm-hmm. So, well, well, let's get let's get to Tesla. And I always say this um, because a lot of people do not know that Elon Musk was not the founder of Tesla. He came in at the Series A. The founder of Tesla was you and your friend Martin. And so, Tesla was co-founded by a Berkeley alum. So, anybody who's listening, please make a note of this. Please tweet it, uh, <laughs> post it, get the word out. Elon Musk, of course, a wonderful, a wonderful leader. But the origin of Tesla came from you and your friends. So, so tell us about the real origination of Tesla. That those those moments when it 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 that flower bloomed in your mind. So Martin Eberhardt and I, in 2003, we had just spent three years. So, you know, after the dot-com bust, there was sort of nuclear winter in the funding community in Silicon Valley. And by this time, Martin and I are both, you know, completely embedded in the startup community and and venture community here in in Silicon Valley. So nuclear winter, 
was not the greatest time to to be in that world. But we ended up, or at least I did, and then Martin actually uh, came in and helped a little bit too with at a at a company called Packet Design, which was uh, founded by a, a wonderful C- CEO, Judy Estrin. She had been CTO of, of Cisco right before that. And after three years there, and it was a very tough time to be in that in the world that she was working in. The company reorganized, and the reorganization, you know, I left it as did Martin to start something new. That was what the, the packet design was all about, starting things new. So we thought, perfect, we're going to go off and do something different. And Martin had been really interested in electric cars. He was, you know, before I was, he was, you know, there first. And he had become very upset by the zero emissions mandate being rewritten and all the electric cars in California. That were, the big car companies were sort of forced to, to generate. The, the GM EV1 was probably the most famous, all going off the market and being crushed, in fact, with the with with General Motors. And we decided to fix that. And, Wonderful. Yeah. And that was in uh, July of 2003 is when we incorporated. So so that story about the GM vehicles being crushed is, is not well known. But yes, I can imagine these two creative founders. GM, as I, as I understand it, produces electric car, but then decided that they couldn't support that that product, and so they just took it off the ma- the, the market and literally crushed, crushed them. Crushed right? them, yeah. Yes. They they yeah. they were all leased, so they wouldn't sell them. They were all leased, and they when they got the zero emissions mandate rewritten, they they recalled the leases and crushed the cars, and that was actually extremely influential to us because first off, we learned not what not to do. You know, if if your customer loves your product. You don't take it back from them and crush it, and then <laughs> and then expect it for them to buy something else. It just doesn't work that way. And the other thing was that we we realized that there was you know actually quite a large demand for electric cars. Yeah, and you know maybe it wasn't the GM style or size demand, but it was significant and certainly enough to support another car company. So what what was your first challenge? So here you are, you have this dream, and, and I understand. You know, you, your breakthrough was the battery technology, which enabled the, this breakthrough vehicle. But what was your first big challenge, you and Martin? Well, I mean, you know, we're going to start a car company, which sounded utterly insane in 2003. And Martin had this vision. So we had, through our first company, Nuvo Media, we had worked a lot with consumer electronics. It was a consumer electronics company. And and that used batteries, lithium-ion cells which were new at the time. So lithium-ion cells come out in the sort of mid-90s or late-90s, and we were you know, one of the first companies to, to use them, small companies. The, the big guys had access, but they were just kind of filtering down to the, to the small people. And we realized they had tremendous potential, and they just kept getting better. So in the sort of three years of, of, of our absence, they had gotten even better, and Martin's revelation was that, you know, we didn't have to develop new batteries, that if we just used lots of the, of the what are called 18650s, or like a fat AA, we could make a car with them. And I thought it was insane, but the more we looked at it and the more we thought about it, it was clearly the right way to go because as a small company, you're always buying things against, you know, the big companies can buy millions of things, you know, million quantity and get a great price. Small companies can't do that. But in this particular case, because we'd buy so many 18650s per car, even as a small company, we could be a large consumer of these cells and get great pricing. 
And because and, and it turns out that the batteries are like the single most expensive part of an electric car. Indeed. So what you just said is so true about many startups. In fact, my startup, I, I did several startups, and then the one that really took off, NeuroFocus, same, same reaction. Uh, when my co-founder came up with the idea, we both kind of thought it sounded kind of nuts, right? But put a, a cap on your head, measure brain waves, and use that to tell brands how to market, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is the exact response we got from many yeah. potential clients. But the more we looked into it and the more we did the testing, it wasn't crazy, yeah. right? So that's, that's a very common starting point. Well, and that's exactly it, is that we had to, we had to build some, some little test packs to just make sure we understood that we could, could really do it. We did a lot of modeling on spreadsheets to make sure that, that the whole thing hung together and, and made sense. And when we raised money, which is a separate story, when we raised money, that was the initial target, was we knew we had to prove out this sort of large battery pack made of thousands of individual cells that it was both you know, safe and reliable and manufacturable. So that was, that, that to us, that was the single biggest technical risk. And therefore, that was the beginning. You know, that, that's where all of the original R&D money went because we wanted to de-risk that part of the, of the development process. What I like about the Tesla story is that it, it really is a story of putting together uh, elements that exist to, to do something very, very difficult, as you say, to, you know, two guys starting a, a car company, which is now, I believe, one of the largest cap car, market cap car, car companies in the world, mm-hmm. right? Indeed. I mean, in, in how many years? You know, 12, 13? Well, it's been, you know, maybe 17. So, but, so, yeah. Okay, 17 years, right. But it, it, it's extraordinary, and I think it's it's really inspiring for people to know how you built this so creatively but using things that 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 to a large extent existed it was it, it was a question of how do you put them together and and the technical technical challenges were very difficult but 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 you kept at them and then the other part of it that i like is is how you decided to build the, the first roadster so tell us how you how you put that together cuz you did that Leveraging existing infrastructure. Right. So the original Roadster, the original Tesla, was a, a two-seater um, Roadster-style car, which is a you know, you know, two seats and sort of an open open top that can you know, convertible. And we looked, you know, with our spreadsheets and modeling, trying to figure out what would be a good car to make. And you know, SUVs were very popular at the time, and we you know looked at, at what we could do there, and we realized that 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 market was too competitive, that it would. That the that the tooling requirement to build something like that would be too great, and it wouldn't necessarily show off what electric cars are really great at, and that's acceleration. Electric cars accelerate faster than any internal combustion car can. So when we when we really internalize that, we looked at the market and thought, you know, like where where could we come into the market that there's enough margin that we could play and you know and release something that people would you know would want at that price point. And we could compete on something other than just that it's electric. Because we didn't want to build, you know, oh, it's a lame car, but it's electric. We wanted to build something that was like, wow, that is an awesome car. Wow, and it's electric. Key so, insight. Yeah, very, very yeah. different. Yeah, so mm-hmm. so that's where we came down on, onto the, the Roadster. And then within that, we realized, so my big concern with between you know Martin's an electrical engineer my specialty is firmware so i knew that we could build the the drivetrain the thing that made the car go it's you know electric motors nikola tesla invented the ac induction motor you know in the 1800s 
we knew we could do that, or at least you know we were pretty confident we could solve all the technical problems to, to make that manufacturable. The problem that I was most concerned with was making the actual car part. You know, how do you get tires and axles and stuff mm, like that? Right, right. Uh, and it turned out that as we researched, you know, over that summer to see if this was really even going to be possible, we that summer of two thousand three, we discovered that the car industry uh, had so refactored itself that the big car companies only had kept a handful of, te- of processes. One was the final assembly of the car, the marketing of the car, and the some of the styling, actually they outsourced a lot of the styling, and they also kept the, the building and design of the internal combustion engine, which we didn't care about. But basically everything else was outsourced in one form or another, including even some of them were completely outsourced, even the assembly of them. Mm. So we discovered that there were Magna Steyr in Austria, made lots of cars for different car companies, and Lotus, which is a small boutique, you know, uh, relatively small volume boutique sports car company in England, they had done contract manufacturing for GM and for a couple of other companies over the years. So they had a mechanism to engage with us. So we hired them to screw the car together. We would mm-hmm. supply the drivetrain, we would supply all the electronics, we would supply all the sophisticated stuff, but they had their deep supply chains in things like you know steering wheels and and instrument packs and thing and door hinges and all that kind right. of stuff that right, you need. Right. So hence the reason why we we always wondered why why does the Tesla somewhat resemble the Lotus and that is why. Yeah, and and one yeah. of the big big constraints, although we, it we used we redesigned their chassis to be more friendly for our electric car, their machinery in the factory could only handle cars that were about the same size and shape. So hence the the, it, the the similarity. Ah, yeah, it could be a little yeah. longer, but it couldn't be any wider. And we right. would have loved to have for it to have been wider, but we mm-hmm. we you know couldn't couldn't do that because they're literally they're they're the machines right. that grabbed hold of the of the car in the factory uh, couldn't deal with that. That's a great point about the car industry that that's kind of overlooked is how little of the process the car the auto manufacturers actually do, and and then and the rest is is marketing. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's an enormous uh, ecosystem of suppliers that supply the car industry. Every, you know, the upholstery and the seats and, you know, the transmissions and all of that stuff is supplied by by outside suppliers, really. It might be branded, you know, with a particular car company, but it's almost always from outside suppliers. They do do mainly the final assembly. And we just, we didn't think we were going to add any you know, great insight and cleverness to the final assembly of cars in low volume. I mean, that's been done for a hundred years in the car industry. We figured they were pretty good at it. So, right. but by having a partner to help us there, that was so. Good. So, was the decision to not set up dealerships a constraint that led to your creative approach, or did you did you think that that was a great way to sell the car? Tell us about that. You know, the dealership thing was a was an education, and it was actually something. So, our so in that summer of two thousand three, we had to figure out how we were going to build the car, whether, first off, we could do it, and then later, you know, how we were going to do it and who we would potentially partner with. We also had to figure out how we were going to service the cars, how we were going to, you know, support all of our customers all over the country and ultimately the world, and how we were going to sell them. We loved the idea of just selling them on the Internet. You know, we had this vision of sort of an, of a store that, you know, you'd select the car that you want and you'd, you know, you'd press buy now, you know, and the and the your little cart would get really fat and then you'd just, you know, check out <laughs> right, and it right. would just be like, you know, Amazon. But we knew that that, you know, didn't, we had to have places where people could see the car and interact with it. 
So we thought we'd do dealerships. You know, that's what all the car industry does. And we, before we pitched for real, we went and pitched to some friendly VCs that we knew that we knew wouldn't invest. I mean, you know, we told them that this is something that's outside of your thesis or it's outside of your, your target range. But we'd love for you to just give us, if you could give us some feedback. So we pitched to them. And along that way, you know, they asked us all kinds of questions that were great. And it, it really honed both our story, but also our, our you know, model. We had to kind of, oh, gee, how, we, how are we really going to do that marketing? How really are we going to do this and that? And one of the things was distribution. And we got really hammered on the dealerships. And it forced us to really think about how we were going to, you know, what exactly, how we were going to sell these things. And it turned out that the car dealership model is really flawed. And it's flawed in a bunch of ways. One is that they're independently owned. So the car company itself has no contact with the end customer, which we didn't like at all because we really like to have that close contact with the customer. They also, you know, we can't control the customer experience at all. And sometimes, you know, we we screw up on the customer experience, but but at least we we can fix it then. Right. You know, like, oh, right, okay, right. there's a feedback. You don't have that if you have dealerships. And then as we explored it, we learned that all of the car companies pretty much would love to get rid of their dealership networks, and that's legally prohibited. Once you have them, you can never get rid of them ah. by law in all fifty states. Interesting. And so, and it's it's a fast it's un it's un-American effectively. I mean, when people find out about how the franchise laws work, they they just go, well, that just can't be. No one would ever do that. Right, right. Why? But it's actually written in yeah. law in all 50 states. Wow. So, which is why Tesla still can't sell cars in a couple of states because their laws, most of the laws we were able to, to not get in trouble with because it all assumed you already had sold, you already had franchises, you already had car dealerships. The, the, most of the laws never anticipated a new car company. Right. So we came right. in and didn't do that and... You know, but in some states they did anticipate a new car company and they prevent, uh, prohibited it. Yeah, I remember there are a few states where there was uh, quite a, a period of a protracted negotiation. Well, right, they had to change Tesla. the law. Yeah. yeah, and I think there's yeah. still a couple that Tesla still can't sell, and I'm not right. totally sure of that. But right, right, interesting. So I've also wanted to ask you, Mark, about the origin of the Tesla name. It's it's you know kind of obvious why you chose it, but but tell us about that moment. You know, you and Martin having a beer one day, <laughs> was it? knocking back names. No, so so that's actually we were struggling a little bit for a name, and it was actually before we incorporated. It was you know in April or May we were talking about this, and you know I'm not exactly sure. You know, and, and Nikola Tesla obviously at that time was although well-known among the engineering community, was really obscure. You know, like if you were not like super into the, you know, sort of geek community, you had never heard of him. And there hadn't been movies yet. And there wasn't a year of Nikola Tesla, which the UN declared a couple of years after, you know, we started. And, and because we were using an AC induction motor, which Nikola Tesla had invented, you know, Martin, you know, said, hey, you know, I think, you know, how about Tesla Motors? And there's a lot of different branding reasons why that's, you know, if you, if you go to a branding company, they'll say, oh, you know, you have to come up with something that's really, really bizarre. You know, it has to be like, you know, Exxon, where it means nothing in any language and has no name connotation and everything. That's a really strong trademark. Uh, and it, it's yeah. all about trademark law and, yeah. and, and copyrights and things. But, you know, we loved the idea of sort of honoring Nikola Tesla in that way. And in fact, we, we messed up. So we 
you know, we incorporated on July 1st, and the lawyers were kind of dithering, and we said, you know, we really want you to get this done before July 4th weekend. You guys are going to go off to, you know, wherever you go, and, and it's going to be, you know, later in the week. So they went ahead and pushed it through, and we incorporated it on July 1st of 2003. And about two years later, actually it was when the UN was declaring Nikola Tesla Day or whatever, or the year of Nikola Tesla, we discovered that his birthday was like July 10th. Or so, mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly, but it was only like a week and a half after we incorporated. And uh-huh. if we had, if I had known, it just never occurred to us to, to you know, I was just pushing the lawyers through and it, uh-huh. it just, right. I never thought, oh, I should look to see when his birthday is and see if we can do it then. Uh-huh. Um, but the that, one regret about Tesla. Yeah, that right, would have right been, there. yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, that, that would have been uh, a, a little bit Well, better. you got the month right. So, oh, exactly. So, yes. yes. So exactly. That, that, that's what's important. And, you know, record keeping in the 1800s probably wasn't so great. Yeah, so maybe, yeah. maybe we're knows? there. Right. I mean, exactly. who knows? Right. Te- zero, one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's a great story. I've always wondered about that. Love the name because because of that, because it's meaningful and, and, and it educates people. You know, they, they hear the name and who was that interesting person? And then we all go look it up and, and, and read that story. And he was... Quite an interesting person. I, yeah. I yes, he was. That that's a that's a whole other subject of another podcast. Yes, <laughs> for sure. So so tell us about that's the early days, and and you and Martin creating this wonderful new, new entirely new way of of driving and selling cars. So tell us about Elon and how he came on board. And- yeah, so we were pretty after we had done these sort of mock venture raises right around Christmas of two thousand three. It was time to actually go raise money. So this was this was something we realized that you know this was going to take a lot of money. You know, we we had yeah. done okay in the previous company, but this was way beyond anything that we could fund. You know, personally, so we began shaking the trees on Sand Hill Road, and you know the VCs are always polite, uh, you know, but, <laughs> but we pretty you know they, they, were, they were not getting a lot of success, uh, which is is actually typical. You know, like. The VCs see a lot of pitches, and they only fund a handful of companies a year, and yet they see, you know, you know, four or five pitches, a, you know, a week at least each individual partner. So, you know, the you're not, you're almost always going to get a rejection. You know, it's it's very rare you're going right. to get a yes. But we had gotten a couple of yeses for small firms, small venture funds that were intrigued and were willing to take a a, a real risk, but we were looking for a lead investor still. So they were in, assuming we could find a lead, and the terms were okay. And along the way, through kind of a funny set of circumstances, we discovered that Elon Musk, who we had, I'm, I'm, Elon probably doesn't even remember this, but Martin and I had met him at a uh, Mars conference at Stanford f- a few years before. A Mars conference. Yes, the, the, the Mars Society. Not the, the planet. Yes, it's about uh, getting. Uh, it's about getting to the planet. Ah, uh, so even back then he was in. Right, Mars. so this is before SpaceX, and uh-huh. he he had right. given a talk on an experiment that he wanted to do. And he was trying to arrange a rocket, basically, to get his experiment up into space. And he was appalled at the options and the costs. And, and he said, you know, this is actually the real problem. And, but, and, you know, he, this is, you know, like a year before he started SpaceX. And so we thought, you know, he seemed really interesting. And we went up and just, you know, said hi to him afterwards. And then when his name came up again, we said, oh, yeah, that's that guy, you know, that we, we saw at Stanford. The Mars guy. Yeah, the Mars guy. Uh-huh. So we went down to L.A., or Hawthorne, I think, is perhaps where, where it was, wherever the original SpaceX offices were, and we gave him a pitch. And, you know, one of the great things, and you know, I've said this in a b- bunch of different contexts, but about pitching to Elon was, you know, 
when you're pitching to VCs on Sand Hill Road and you talk about electric car company, you know, electric sports cars, a car company, if, in any context, that just seems craziness. But when you're pitching to Elon and he literally, there was like this glass window and he's building this giant rocket motor, you know, in behind him, you know, that's just not going to come up. He's like, yeah. that's a crazy idea. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And he was very supportive. He really believes in changing the energy equation of, of the society, you know, of the U.S. and of, of the planetary society and got it. You know, he was like, wow, okay. And then we came back a few days. He peppered us with questions over the course of a weekend. And then we flew down again a few days later and sort of, you know, did one more pass. And he says, okay, I'm in. Wow. And that, it was very quick. Mm-hmm. And then once he was in, you know, once we had a lead investor, as is typical in these rounds, once there's a lead investor, then then you can fill out the rest of the round, right, which is right. what we did. Right, right. So it took about a week. Honestly. Well, by by the time, well, we were, so we started pitching in January and then we closed at the end of April. But I mean with Elon. Yeah, it was, Elon was in yeah. in about a week. And right. then, but right. you know, there's the lawyers and, you know, it takes, it right. takes a few weeks and, to yeah. actually do the close. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But he got it right away. Oh, he did, yeah. And he was, he uh-huh. was very supportive from that point forward. You know, he came to all the board meetings and, you know, was it was always uh, helpful. Wonderful. And so, how long then were you at the company? Because you were you're there for some time. You and Martin, and then tell us about how that evolved. <laughs> yeah. So you know, the company grew. We um, you know got the roadsters pretty close to 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 production. We had you know, as is typical, we had some cost overruns along the way. Although some of them were sort of premeditated in that we changed the design of the car to make it better and, and therefore it would take us a little bit longer and, and it would be more expensive for development, but the end result would be better. And I think that was the right decision. You can't really do an A-B test on these kind of things, but right. but I think that was the, the right choice. Then at some point, and you can, you know, listeners can go in and read about it, Elon and Martin had, and Martin had been the CEO the whole time, had some kind of falling out mm-hmm. and, and Martin, you know, sort of gets ejected. And then we had a temporary CEO, an interim CEO, uh, Michael Marks, who uh, had been running Flextronics before, knew all about manufacturing. He's super. Unfortunately, he could only be interim because he had his own thing that he was starting in a few mm-hmm. months. And he's like, you know, I can help out, but, you know, in a few months, I'm you know, out of here for sure. So he was uh, you know, incredibly helpful during that period. And we were having trouble getting the Roadster into production due to a, a supplier failure. Ah. And it really just about tanked the company. But, wow. but we found a way through that ultimately. And then the board put in Zev Drory, who is one of the founders of Monolithic Memories. And that was not the greatest fit for the company, although you know, it wasn't obvious right away. And that's when I left. So we were just, everyone was switching over to the, the Model S design, you know, all the engineering groups and stuff were, as we were finishing off wow. the Roadster. And it was time to, for me to switch over. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's been five years. I have little kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was. You, uh, you want to not go to bed at midnight every night. Exactly. Before, and, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, the, yeah. it just wasn't as much fun without, without Martin there. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I was not, you know, super enamored with, with Zev. And then a few months later, you know, Zev got, you know, retired or ousted or whatever, I don't mm-hmm. really know. And, and Elon became the CEO, which, which was a great decision. He had been, you know, mm-hmm. so supportive on the board all, all the way along and, and, and very involved, especially as we got into, as we had these problems at the end of the Roadster release. So did you have any um, involvement after that as, as a, 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 once a founder, always a founder, but, or were you? 
just admiring it from, from I, you know, afar. I, I only admire it from from uh-huh. a distance at that uh-huh. point, and a shareholder, of course, right. <laughs> which right. which has been you know fantastic. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, once once you leave a company, whether you're a founder or not, you know, you you need to go do something else, and they need you to go do something else. I don't think it's right for you to come in and sort of kibitz still. It, it's hard to have one foot in, one foot out. No, yeah, and you yeah. and you know you don't know. Uh, all the nuances anymore and you mm-hmm. can't I think that your advice in kibitzing becomes even less effective and you know as as time goes by so you know I, I made sure that, that you know I, I walked out and I was like ah good time to go do something else well it all turned out very very well yeah so well now you are taking that that great insight that you got from Tesla as an investor so it occurred to me that that having you, you having had this experience of launching something that people thought was completely nuts, and you know you, you talk about pitching to VCs who were you know simply there to give you feedback, who I'm sure all now tell the story of, yeah, you know, Mark and Martin and pitched me and I didn't go for it, and you know how VCs love to say the ones that got away, but but how do you what how do you bring that? You must bring that to your daily work uh, at Sparrow Ventures. Oh yeah, you know. Just because the idea is a little bit outlandish doesn't, you know, get it thrown out, obviously. And I, I will say that, by the way, some of the VCs do have an anti-portfolio uh, on their websites, and Tesla is prominently featured on several <laughs> on many, yes. uh, on, on the, the anti. Because you know you get yeah. turned down by nearly everybody. So. Right, right, um, right. And so people know the anti-portfolio are the ones that that that, that were pitched to you. That you passed on that became great successes. So yes, yes. And, and in fact, one of the Skydeck supporters, uh, Bessemer Ventures, was one of it, we were uh, we were the number one on their anti portfolio for years. Oh I don't know if if we're still on. I, I've actually heard that from a, a partner or two at Bessemer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they're quite, they're kind of proud of it. I <laughs> they, think they, they are. Well, you know, it shows the anti portfolio shows that you have the deal flow. Yes. That that is why people. And it, it and it shows a certain confidence as well mm-hmm. that that you can you can admit that you know you should have probably invested in this one but you didn't right. you know right, right. and for whatever right. reason yeah. I you know one of the things that that I learned I I was briefly a um, an EIR entrepreneur in residence for six months at uh, which is a great position and I encourage anybody you know who who has the opportunity to go do that at a venture firm you basically get to you know, think deep thoughts about the markets and see lots of companies and help out wherever the the VC, you know, the, the venture partners need you. So you get to see lots of, of fun things and, and do interesting stuff. But when when I was there, I be, really realized how difficult it was to write the check, uh, you know, because yeah. you see so many deals and some of them look so great. And yet they're, you know, but there are they as great as the one you saw before or the one you might see, you know, next week? It's very, very hard because you have so few checks to write. At Sparrow, you know, we look at everything very carefully. We look at the founders. We look at the technology. We are a technology investor ultimately. So we don't invest in business models. We don't invest in brand. It has to have some kind of differentiating technology component, which I really like uh, that. You know, if it was a brand thing, that's not my world. I don't really understand how that works. Although you built one of the most successful bl- brands on the planet, but because it had the great technology, right? Exactly, it really it's a technology company that we yeah. were able to build a great brand with. Yes, but if it was just if we had just come out with another internal combustion engine sports car, and it was all just mm-hmm. about brand, you know, and lifestyle. Oh. I mean, you know, I don't know how that works. Right, right, right. It was about the experience, which. Um, as a Tesla owner myself, 
I, I can uh, attest to is, is, is an amazing experience to this day. So, so tell us about the future that you see um, that you're trying to work on as, as, a part, as a venture partner. So you must see companies that, that can really make an impact. And, and how do you think about them? And, and what are some of the ones that you're excited about? Well, so I won't say which specific companies that we're you know, looking at, but I'll, some of the areas that we are. One of the ideas is that you can't you know, we, we want to reach a point in the future where we have sustainable abundance. So we have a, you know, a fantastic, wonderful, you know, society that has as much material goods as we want and, and as much exciting experiences as, as, as we want available to everybody. And that's sustainable because a lot of the stuff that we do isn't sustainable. It really will end uh, at some point if we don't find new processes to, to keep it going. You know, new materials, new, you know, new recycling, you know, whatever right, it is. Right, right, right. So we look for companies that, that will have that kind of impact because those are going to be the big companies of the future. You know, it, I had looked at uh, a variety you know, of sort of nonprofit opportunities over the years, and they're, although they're doing great work, ultimately, though, the thing that really moves the needle are, are you know, whether you believe in capitalism or not, are these big companies that are providing products that people love that actually make a difference in some way or another. You know, they, they're more fuel efficient or they use electricity or they, they are good for your health in some way or they keep the air clear, you know, whatever it is that they're looking at. So some of the areas that we're excited about, at least I am, I do mostly the sustainability, you know, part of, of their venture portfolio. I like IoT stuff that tells us what's really going on. And that is something that I wasn't always a big believer in, but I have I have now seen results and talked to customers who have really had enormous impacts because they could finally see what was happening. Mm-hmm. And they go, wow, you know, we didn't realize our, you know, water quality was terrible here or our air quality was, was messed up or, you know, whatever the particular, or, or that we were using so much water, we thought we were using a lot less over there. So I think that that's a way that we can really make a difference in in health. What other things? Of course, you know, AI has some interesting applications everywhere. Uh, it's incredibly overhyped, but like all those things, you know, it'll crash on the hype curve ultimately, but or eventually, but then end up being super influential, you know, moving forward. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. How do you how do you think about social media at Sparrow and, and so so we you know social media is is interesting. Obviously, we use it to get our message out. We look at invest. We actually invest in in things around community, but we're only investing in things that create actual community. So if it's just sort of a digital experience, like you know, like Facebook, or that's not something that we would invest in. Mm. It might be a great business, but it's not something that we think ultimately is important. Whereas things that bring humans together, <laughs> albeit at the moment with this you know COVID nineteen thing, is a little bit of a problem, but. Uh, we do look at, at companies and technologies that help people gather and have actual, real, meaningful person-to-person exchanges. Yeah, we think about that a lot at Skydeck because you know we have this huge program, of course, of which you're a part, and there is no substitute for the in-person meeting. So, so we bring our advisors in to meet the startups, and now that you know we're we're facing the, this virus, we're thinking, well, we're going to have to do some things remote. And and we know there's just no substitute for that face-to-face meeting. You know, Zoom is great, and and we're on it all the time. But but we think about 
that very much. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about your experience as a Sky Advisor, because you've been very active at Skydeck, and you've been really helpful to our startups. You've, you've come in and talked to our founders about Tesla and all things. But tell us about that experience, because it's very important to us, and we've really appreciated you having here. I'd lo- having you. I'd love your perspective on it. Oh, well, thank you for that. So every cohort seems to be, in some ways, better than the previous one. And I, maybe it's just, I, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it seems as if uh, the Skydeck crew, you know, you guys have done an amazing job at, at finding and, and curating that, that cohort. Uh, and then when, you, when I interact with a Skydeck company, they seem to be much more put together than many of the other startups uh, that we see. And I think that that's a function of your program, that you actually have sort of a curriculum as far as, I mean, it seems to, to, to get them on a very firm footing. And, and in fact, you know, I look forward to investing in, you know, various Skydeck companies over the years with uh, Sparrow. Excellent. Well, well, we're about to, to bring on the largest cohort ever. So maybe by the time this podcast is launched... That announcement will be out, but but we've been growing like crazy and in a good way, and so we we do hope that that every cohort gets better and better and better, and and we aim to be better and better, and and really the 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 core of it is bringing people like you who have experience and insight and enthusiasm for for startups and founders to meet them and and pass on that wisdom as uh, quickly and efficiently in a way that that's meaningful for both the founder and and the advisor, and if we can just you know, nail that. You know, I think I think we'll be doing really, really well. What What's in the future for Mark Tarpening? Well, you know, that's always a, a good question because I actually don't believe in planning out my career path or, or just in, in general. I would all of the sort of random career changes I've made have been always interesting and exciting, and not necessarily always successful. But but I wouldn't change anything. At the moment, I'm pretty focused on this idea of being, you know, an investor and helping startups because I realize that that's really what, you know, my whole world has been for so so long are, are startups. And I love hearing about, you know, young founders and or, you know, old founders as well. We don't, you know, it's not an age thing, mm-hmm. although they tend to be on the younger side now. Young companies. Young companies. Young companies. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And, and about the technology that they're, you know, bringing out. And where they see, you know, both market opportunity, which many times I didn't even know that market existed. You know, it's a, it's a Gen Z thing that I just was unaware of that this was this was even a thing. And my kids, you know, just die laughing when I tell them, <laughs> like, "What did you? What do you mean you didn't know about that?" Same. Yeah. Same, it's, it's, yeah. So it, it, I think in many ways it keeps me young that yes. way. Yes. Yeah. The 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 millennials and the Gen Z. Um, I will often reach out to my kids. What does this acronym mean? Yes, exactly. Mom, I can't believe you didn't know that. But I am excited about the future because I think when I look at the young young people today, I feel like in a way we're, it's it's kind of another version of the '60s, where where the, the the next generation is going. We really need to make some fundamental changes. Yeah, and it's that mission actually. The I would there does appear to be a a qualitative difference that in the 90s it was about you know coming up with a company that would make money it was all about whatever could get the biggest market share actually at that time it was the biggest eyeballs number of eyeballs right. you could possibly right. get and the companies that we see now seem to be much more mission driven which is something we specifically look for at at Sparrow but 
you know, the founders really believe in their product and they really want it to succeed and they believe it will make things, you know, it'll make life better in some way. You know, whether it is sometimes things that you look at and go, huh, well, I guess that's true, but I'm not sure that many people will really care or things that are, you know, much more profound and, and, and big picture. And the, the line is blurring between you know, impact investing, social impact investing, and kind of, quote, unquote, regular investing. Yeah, so at Sparrow, we are regular investors, but we have a filter in front that says that the company you know, must meet you know, some of our, our ideals of, of what we want to see in the future. Mm-hmm. So you know, there, there's a whole, you know, like if it was a giant gambling app, you know, we just wouldn't do that, even though we th- would think maybe it has, you know, some kind of monetary value. It's just not something that we were interested in. Yeah, we're very focused on that at Skydeck, and that that we think that insight is very powerful. That that a company can have a big impact, and be a big financial success. Exactly. And so, so we're. I think that the Berkeley values, you know, from the '60s back, you know, the free speech <laughs> movement and and you know, equality for all and and change the world, uh, really are very relevant again. And and I think it, it's great to hear your story about, you know, as as a Berkeley alum, a young Berkeley alum, created a company that really is changing the world. It, it, it's changed an indu- an entire industry. Well, at least it's it's working on it. It's getting there, yeah. and 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 I'm sure now with your creation, you're in Martin's creation, and now Elon driving, mm. uh, L- will, literally driving, literally driving. Yeah. Yes, yeah, rockets and cars, and and his grand vision to to integrate it as part of a whole energy change, how we consume energy. I'm I'm sure it will get there, and it came from you. It came from you and Martin, and and your hearts and minds, and yeah, your creativity. Well, and, and all of the you know hundreds of people that that contributed at the beginning of uh, and still contribute the thousand you know thousands of employees and everybody else that makes it happen. Indeed. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you. I very much enjoyed it. And um, we look forward to hearing about um, the adventures of Mark Tarpening (laughs) in the future. So thanks for joining us, Mark. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. This episode was produced by Sybil Chen. Theme music by Guy Aries and David Ari Leon of Score Songs. We recorded this podcast on the UC Berkeley campus. Thanks for listening.